When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of Dress Media. eight billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Well, dress listeners, today we are here to celebrate the groundbreaking Battle of Versailles, which happened 50 years ago to this very day, November 28th, 1973. And it was a day when American ready-to-wear designers skyrocketed into the international spotlight and the history books after a widely publicized and now legendary fierce fashion face-off against their French haute couturier counterparts, and they won. Yes, and what the fashion press later deemed as a quote-unquote battle was in fact actually conceptualized as a fundraising event intended to raise money for the then dilapidated Palace of Versailles. Today, it's hard to imagine the now-restored, sprawling 2,300-room palace and famed residents of kings and queens of France as anything but awe-inspiring, but 50 years ago, the palace was in quite a state of disrepair. Enter the groundbreaking American fashion publicist and tireless American fashion advocate, Eleanor Lambert, who co-conceived of this event. She very rightly prophesied the showcase as a way to elevate the American ready-to-wear fashion designers to their rightful standing alongside their Parisian counterparts. So, to make her case, Eleanor selected five American ready-to-wear designers, Holston, Stephen Burroughs, Oscar de la Renta, Anne Klein and Bill Blast to showcase their designs alongside those of Parisian haute couturiers. Um, And their peers on the other side would have been Marc Bohan for Dior, Emmanuel Angaro, Yves Saint Laurent, Pierre Cardin, and Hubert de Givenchy. And this was a really big deal at the time, right, April? Because our listeners need no reminder about the vice grip that Parisian fashion designers and their designs had on American consumer tastes and the American fashion industry at large throughout the 20th century. It was incredibly pervasive. But as our listeners also know, there were American fashion designers that certainly were successful and made names for themselves. We've done episodes on Elizabeth Hawes, Claire McCardle, most recently Anne Lowe. And these American fashion designers were not without their champions, like one Eleanor Lambert, whose life and legacy we have also covered on the show because her impact on the American fashion industry cannot be overstated enough. Yes, we have Eleanor to thank for the very first Fashion Press Week in the 1940s, which laid the foundation for New York Fashion Week. We also have her to thank for the International Best Dress List, the Cody Awards, and also for establishing the Council of Fashion Designers of America, the CFDA, and all of these efforts she undertook to bolster the profile of American fashion design at a time when their own industry 
did not even really deem itself worthy of recognition. So another part of all of these efforts, of course, include the now legendary Battle of Versailles, which celebrates its 50th anniversary today. And we have, of course, talked about this event many times on the show because it was so significant for what it represented at the time and today. Not only did it put American fashion designers on the international map, it helped to elevate their particular brand of fashion as the future of fashion. Chic, high-end, ready-to-wear clothing worn by a diverse cast of models. There were famously 10 Black models at Versailles. And this event was incredibly significant in a multitude of ways that we remain indebted to today. And in 2018, Dressed, of course, celebrated the 45th anniversary of the event with fashion critic and author Robin Gavon. And we will certainly link to our interview with Robin in the show notes, because that actually is a really good primer for today's episode if you want to listen to it first. Yes, Robin joined us to talk about her book, The Battle of Versailles, The Night American Fashion Stumbled into the Spotlight and Made History. And today we are joined by one of the two models on the book's cover, and also, of course, featured within its pages, a woman who played no small part in making the Battle of Versailles a success for the Americans, and that is because she was there. We are so, so pleased to welcome Chris Royer back to Dressed. And our listeners will remember that Chris joined us earlier this summer to talk all about working with and preserving the legacy of Halston, who she came to work for as an in-house fit model in 1972 during an exciting and transitional period for the designer who would drastically expand his brand and presence on the international stage. But as a trained fashion designer, she quickly became so much more than a model to Halston. She was an integral part of his in-house creative team, working alongside Joe Eula and Elsa Peretti on many projects, including preparing and participating in the Grand Divertissement of Versailles fundraising event of 1973, which she is going to tell us all about today. Chris, welcome back to Dressed. Chris, welcome back to Dressed. I am so excited to talk to you again today. Same here. Same here, Cassidy. It's great hearing from you again, and I, I'm very excited about this segment in relation to Versailles. Yeah, absolutely. And this episode for our listeners is actually going to be airing. If you're listening to it on the day it airs, it's airing on November 28th, 2023, which is exactly 50 years after the now legendary Battle of Versailles, which we are, of course, here to talk about today. And it's one thing for someone like myself to read about it. And it's another entirely to have been a witness to it firsthand and to have been such a central part of its success. So I'm so excited to talk to you about and learn more about it today. Absolutely. A lot of untold stories. Yes, absolutely. And I'm so excited to dig in uh, to those. But first, uh, as our listeners will remember from our two-part interview with you earlier this summer, you joined Halston's design team and his in-house modeling team in 1972. And that was, of course, the year before the Grand Divertissement of Versailles, in which you played no small part. And first, I would just like to kind of set the scene a bit and learn a little bit more about Halston and the other designers and within the context of of a very important person, and that is the visionary fashion publicist, Eleanor Lambert. She is kind of the visionary behind the showcase of Versailles. Halston was one of five designers that included Stephen Burroughs, Oscar de la Renta, Anne Klein, and Bill Blass. And they all happened to be at one point or another clients of Eleanor Lambert. And I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about Eleanor Lambert's relationship with Halston, because 
Many consider Halston to be the first American celebrity designer, and so I'm really curious if she played any role in his ascension to star designer. Eleanor was key to his discovery, his development, and she was a mentor as well as a friend. When she first met Halston, this is a very funny story, because she was working with MGM because Grace Kelly was getting married to the Prince Rainier of Monaco. And it was Eleanor who was handling all the PR and the the wedding press. Now, one of the uh, gossip columnists, big Hollywood gossip columnists, was Hedda Hopper. And they knew each other. And they had a meeting about the wedding. And as soon as Eleanor came in, she saw Hedda's hat. And hats at that time were so important. And so she said, where did you get that hat? So Hedda said, well, I got it from this young designer uh, based in Chicago, and his name is Halston. So what happened was Eleanor wasted no time, went to Chicago, <laughs> and met with Halston. Then she decided upon seeing him, she instantly knew he was her new rising star. He is going to become an iconic designer. So she convinced him to move to New York and to work with Lily Dashay. Now, Lily Dashay at that point was a very prominent hat designer, and she had her own salon. So she said to Lily, you must hire Halston. Halston came, established himself. He became a rising star in Lily Dashay's salon, which was located on 55th Street, two blocks away from Bergdorf Goodman. At a certain point, Eleanor decided it was time for Halston to move to Bergdorf Goodman. And yes, of course, Bergdorf Goodman was a client of hers. When Halston was moved into Bergdorf Goodman, that's where most people know of him as the great millinery designer from Bergdorf Goodman. But it was really Eleanor. So all along the way, Eleanor had been carefully developing, nurturing him, and advising him on what he needed to become a great and an iconic American designer. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that is so interesting. I actually had no idea that she played such a big role in Halston's success. But I mean, it totally makes sense. This woman was a driving force in American fashion. And I'm curious, Chris, do you have any insights into how she came up with the idea to use the Versailles fundraiser as a showcase for American design? So in 1973, this was pivotal time in American and international fashion. Now, at that time, American design was considered more or less a stepchild. American ready-to-wear was not really considered real fashion. French couture was the king. Yep. And so, <laughs> so <laughs> Eleanor Lambert, the iconic Indiana-born publicist, created and handled the Versailles Gala in 1973. She knew this was the perfect time to show the modernism and the creativity of American sign versus the traditional French couture. Eleanor's intentions of the event was to raise money to refurbish the French buildings, but she also wanted to put on the proper platform the amazing, you know, sense of American design, the American models. And also New York, you know, what it meant and how it had its own style. And it was equal 
to French design. That was one of her key things. But the the whole idea was to merge these two together. She saw it as a platform, right? Yeah. As an opportunity. It was a great to... opportunity. Yeah. See, because she had done a lot of fashion shows around the world, and she purposely avoided doing anything in France because she knew the French attitude, and they were her clients. So she knew that if she could create this benefit with Versailles to aid them in helping rebuild, you know, and restore Versailles back to the beauty it was, this would work for both sides. But I think it was also that during that time, it was something that you could show the difference between two ways of creating fashion. Absolutely. And of course, this event was a huge success. And it's what we're here to talk about today, a 50-year celebration of this one monumental day, because it's such a seismically important moment in the history of fashion and in the history of American fashion. And I would love to talk to you about the preparations leading up to the event, because of course, you were there. (laughs) And what, what do you remember, for instance, about preparing for Versailles in New York, in the Halston Salon, and kind of who were, who did Halston bring on to be a part of this preparation team? Like, did he create, for instance, gowns specifically for the show or, or how, what was that preparation process like? The preparation process was massive because we were working, I would say we'd start at eight o'clock in the morning and go all the way to two, three in the morning, creating an entire collection dresses for the actual segment. And it was amazing because it was Shirley Farrell and myself who were the fitting mops at that point. And we we had to plan out how many that would be on the stage and knowing that we had to work all of this into a six six minute piece. Now he also had to dress some of the ladies, the society ladies. But when we did this, we were also dressing Liza Minnelli because when the entire Versailles thing came about, what happened was Liza, who was just becoming a rising star, she did cabaret and so did Marissa Berenson. They decided that Liza would be the host to the American side, which was a great example. Also, Eleanor Lambert was Liza's godmother. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Liza, what's funny about Liza is Liza had two godmothers. She had Kate Thompson, who was the director for the show. For the director of Versailles, you mean, of the, because Kay came on to do the choreography. Yeah. Yeah, she was the choreography. So Liza was very unique in that she had two godmothers. Vincent Minnelli, her father, insisted that if Liza was going to, you know, live in New York, that she had to live with Eleanor Lambert. Oh, that's super interesting. I, I had no idea. Yeah, so very close, very close, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> And Liza, of course, is a dear, dear friend. And Halston were dear, dear friends, incredibly close to one another. Exactly. And that's how they they all, you know, became that inner circle because they all knew each other. Obviously, they also were very close with uh, Joe Eula, who was the creative director for Halston in 73. And it was fascinating to see because Joe was brought in by Eleanor and the group 
to design one of the backgrounds in the opening act of Versailles. And they sent Joe the wrong measurements because they were they were different than American measurements. And so when we got there, the he was going to do an Eiffel Tower. And when we got there, it turned out to be he couldn't use it. So they had to pull in a roll of paper and he got some black paint and a broom <laughs> and made a new Eiffel Tower for the background for the opening act. Yeah. And of course, and we're going to talk about this a little more, the challenges that came once you got to Versailles. Um, but first, I wonder if you remember, for instance, anything about the m- process of model selection, because something that was I found really interesting is that all of the five designers, because there wasn't a whole lot of money for the Versailles show, had to share models. So that means that you had five designers that had to agree on the 36 models uh, that would accompany everyone and they were shared across the designers. Do you remember anything about that process? Did the designers get along with one another? Like, Yeah, the designers basically were all friends with each other. It was pretty much that, you know, on 7th Avenue, they used, there were very professional models that, that were there. And there were also other younger models like myself that just came on. And so, you know, Oscar and Bill knew me and Klein, you know, so they were very open to, because I was basically Halston at that point, but they were very open to using the models because there was only 36 models in total. And some of the other models like Carla Lamont was brought in by Bill Blass because he wanted Carla for that segment. He brought in two male models, Rob Yo and John McMurray, but all the designers basically got along. Some of them, obviously, they shared a lot of those models for their shows on 7th Avenue. So it was basically, it was an adventure. A lot of those girls never were in Paris. So it was a great opportunity to be there and to see Paris and to meet the French and everything that Paris had to offer. I think the other side of it is that one of the, again, up newly discovered stars was the incredible uh, black model, Billy Blair. Billy was discovered under Bill Blass in a show in the Midwest. And they tracked her down and got her to come to, to Paris with them. And I know it was also Alva Chen, I believe that was her first runway show as well. That I don't know. Alva was a model at that point in New York, as well as Pat. And a lot of those girls had done quite a bit of shows. So, and they were very, very good. And all the designers used them in New York. And, you know, this was just a great opportunity. And all the models came from New York is a melting pot. So all those models came from the Midwest and Europe and everywhere. I mean, we had so many diverse models from different backgrounds and countries and nationalities. It was amazing. And the most important thing that Eleanor Lambert wanted was to have beautiful girls. We'll talk more about this um, a little bit later on. But I mean, the models played an incredibly significant role in the success, overwhelming success of the Battle of Versailles. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But first, I want to talk about what has been described as an almost week long event leading up 
to the Versailles show, which was, of course, on November 28th, 1973. And apparently this began before even setting foot on French soil on the plane ride over. Uh, And this is something we talked about in our interview with Robin Gavon. She, of course, did an incredible book on this event. And she talked about the plane ride over as being quite the party. And then there's all of these different parties leading up to the actual event. What do you remember about the week leading up uh, to that event, both in terms of work and play? First of all, getting on the plane, we were working so hard because under Halston, we basically were working well over a month up to two in the morning every night to accomplish all the collection and make sure everything was good. So I basically got on the plane <laughs> and fell asleep. So, <laughs> you know, and then got off and then voila, we are in Paris. The one party that was really incredible, spectacular, was the one that Halston had at Maxine's, which was part of, it was sponsored by Norton Simon in regards to Halston. And he had Liza and he had all the celebrities from Paris uh, come to the dinner. Marissa Berenson was there and he dressed Liza and Marissa in these beautiful outfits, all of us were dressed in Halston because we had to prepare for that as well. So we had different outfits there. And it was to be in Maxine's, which was iconic to begin with, and to see all these incredibly beautiful people from Paris, stars that you you heard of, but to be there and to be with them at the dining room, it was amazing. Such beautiful people. The other parties, I'm not sure about. There wasn't too much time because, you see, we were we were in sort of more of a hotel style outside Paris. We, from the airport, they put us out there because it's a two hour drive to go to Versailles. Can you tell us a little bit about what Versailles was like when you got there? Because obviously, this is a fundraiser to restore it to the glory of what we all recognize today as as tourists who go there and visit. But this was not the case when you you and everyone else was there preparing for this event. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw? We were all dressed very glamorously. I mean, everybody had their fur coats or they had their designer outfits. And, you know, we'd get on the bus and I had a made-to-order burgundy long coat of Walston and cashmere and a six foot long cashmere scarf that we're all dressed dressed and we go out there and first of all it's usually fairly balmy at that time period but it was colder and there was snow on the ground so as we entered it was like this magical palace it was like this is so beautiful and everybody was like Oh, wow. It was magical. It was like a fairy tale setting. So as we went out, we walked into the entrance of the building and the architecture, the, 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 the whole environment of it just took your breath away. You were like, Oh, this is so beautiful. It didn't make a difference that it needed repairs at that moment. (laughs) We discovered later, don't be careful with the doorknobs. Don't be surprised if there's cracks in the glass because it was all hand blown, you know, and the parquet floor did, did indeed need to be repaired, but it was so beautiful. The paintings that you saw on the ceiling and then 
as you went into the Royal Theater, it was like a little jewel box. And you went back and the actual stage is very large. It's like 3,000 square feet. Because when they first built it, it, they would do major operas and ballets. Incredible. So you previously talked about the mishap with the scale on Joe Eula's Eiffel Tower, yeah. but this was actually not the only challenge the Americans faced upon arrival at Versailles. The setting wasn't exactly hospitable from what I've read and heard, but I'm hoping you can talk a little bit more about that because, of course, you were actually there. Can you take us through the rehearsal and prep process once you arrived at Versailles? It's a funny story because when we were rehearsing, there was that story about Halston got freaked out. And uh, he was just depressed because he signed his new agreement and we were working till two in the morning for a month. So the guy yeah, I get <laughs> had a lot on yeah. his shoulders. But he comes in, he goes, did you guys eat? It's cold in here. And he was like, what's going on? You know, and what do you mean you're rehearsing in the basement? You know, so he walked out, Liza followed him and Lisa goes, come on, girls, come on, girls, let's go. So we went out there and she talked to him. You can see her talking in the, the limousine with the tinted windows. And she comes out and she goes, okay, we can now resume rehearsals. Because Halston was saying, if this is not cleared up, I'm going to take my crew and walk out. So she she saved it and we walked back. And I was walking back, I was talking with Liza, and I went, I forgot my dance routine. She goes, don't worry, just stand behind me. And so she she gave me this <laughs> wink, and it's like, stay right here. And so in one of the pictures, you can see my hand in the air following exactly what she did. <laughs> it was like so much fun because so many things were going on. And it, you knew it was all going to work out. Yeah. And I think it's super fascinating, too, because your models, not necessarily dancers, and yet dance is such a significant part. And you hear about, too, that the, you know, this is the 1970s and all of the breaks, et cetera, were like built into the music. So you had to be perfectly choreographed. That's right. And remember, it's six minutes. So we didn't, you know, we were listening to the tapes all the time because everything was six minutes. So you had to do a lot in six minutes and that was it. And you had no choice. And they had to really orchestrate how many girls could they fit on that stage because, you know, you want to fill the stage. You don't want it to look too skimpy. And I'm curious, who was in the wings doing your quick changes? Did you have assistance there? Uh, Halston brought his entire staff. All the designers brought... You know, Tom Fallon with Bill Blass, he was fabulous. Donna Karen was Aunt Klein's assistant at that point. She she was pregnant and she, and they had, I think, one or two other assistants in there. Walston, because we were so, you know, we had so many changes and stuff. We had Stephen Sprouse, we had Bill Dugan, we had Corolla Polakoff, we had Dennis Christopher, we had uh two other, you know, seamstresses as well as a tailor in there in case anything tore, it could be fixed. Oh, and also uh, one thing I forgot to say, you know, with Halston's segment, he also included New York socialites. He had, he brought Janie Holzer, who was one of the, the not only one of the stars of Annie Warhol, but she was also a major society uh, person and a big Vogue model. They had Betsy Kaiser, 
who was a major Vogue model and friend of Paulson as well. Okay, so you have really set the scene for us, Chris. You all had your team, the clothes, the choreography. You are ready. And when we get back from this brief sponsor break, we are going to hear all about the now legendary Battle of Versailles that occurred on November 28th, 1973. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. After the holidays, a little cash goes a long way. The Chime checking account has tons of benefits to help, like fee-free overdraft up to $200 for eligible members, no monthly fees, and thousands of fee-free ATMs. You can even get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. Sign up for Chime today at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. Access to direct deposits up to two days early depends on the timing of the submission of the payment file from the payer. Okay, so the day finally arrived, and the French went first, and they presented something like two hours of presentations that really glorified French haute couture. And Chris, we actually interviewed one of your fellow Versailles models, Bethann Hardison, a few weeks ago, and she equated the French presentations to a variety show with different acts. And when you look at those pictures... It really was an extravagant, over-the-top spectacle that celebrated the opulence, history, and luxury of the French arts, which, of course, haute couture is certainly a part of. 
Oh, they had everything <laughs> for Yves Saint Laurent. They had Gigi Jean-Marie and the Crazy Horse Dancers. They had Rudolf Nureyev. They, they had Josephine Baker. They had all the stars, the French stars on stage. They had everybody on there, whether it was <laughs> Ugaro or whether they had a huge pumpkin for, and they had an orchestra for the, the ballet for the Christian Dior. And then they had a spaceship for, <laughs> for Pierre, Pierre Cardin, <laughs> a big spaceship for Pierre Cardin. So, you know, and then they had a, this thing for Givenchy. It was called the Flower Garden. It was over the top. Oh my God! It was unbelievable. Yeah, and it's and and it was really became emblematic of the Ocature itself, right? It's this very important element of French fashion, right, and fashion at large. But it was very it was increasingly becoming out of touch with the times, and it's something of the old garden. You read about this with a lot of fashion writers, like Eugenia Shepard wrote. Quote, the entire French half of the evening was built around the glories of the past. The Paris designers who opened the evening's entertainment did everything in their power to confirm the rumor that made-to-order fashion is going out of date. And then even the French publication Figaro wrote, I would not be telling the truth if I did not say the Americans show their clothes 100 times better than we. All of their models are stars on the stage, each one more beautiful, more lithe, more panther-like than the other. They march like soldiers and they turn like dancers. And it was just an incredible contrast. The, the actual American segment, we did the opening act Bonjour Paris with uh, Liza, and we're all dressed in daywear. We had umbrellas and we had hats. And Liza was dressed in a Halston a turtleneck and pants with a horseshoe belt of Elsa's, of course. And she had her umbrella and hat. And she she did the opening act, and we were behind her, dancing behind her, in welcoming everybody, you know, to the New York style. And then we went into each designer. So it was Anne Klein first, who did more of an African motif, and she actually worked with Beth Ann on that, you know, and that the music on that was from a, a, a film, and it was very powerful, and it was beautiful. And the, but the girls had to swoosh out of their clothes very quickly to get into Bill Blast. So the 36 girls that were there, they were used for each segment as much as they could to make the changes. That was a problem. It sounds like a lot of models, but it really wasn't because in each segment, you know, depending upon the designer, you would have at least 15 girls or more. So all these girls that you had to plan out who could be in each segment. So let's say in the Ann Klein one, I couldn't make it because I had to be in the next one, which was Bill Blast. And then I had to move right into Stephen Burroughs. Now with Stephen Burroughs segment and Bill Blast's, Bill was one outfit. And he did a beautiful job. It was, it was Cole Porter music. And it was like uh, the theme was going to the, the, the French racing. And Billy Blair was in there. And she she did this amazing dance there to emphasize the gay Parisian lifestyle. And a lot of the girls were dressed in these beautiful long cardigans and things with these gigantic hats with netting on it that uh, conveyed the style of of the time period of Cole Porter. And it was wonderful. And then from that, you had to move 
very quickly into Stephen Burroughs. And Stephen's outfits were beautiful. The colors were magnificent. And we had to create what was called a, a background for his opening. And what they did was because most of our hair had to be slicked back because we couldn't change and do the hair too much. So my hair was slicked back. Ramona's was slicked back. Beth Ann's and, you know, they put what is called bird quills in our hair. And so they kept this behind what is called the scrim. So it showed the shadow of the girls. So as the opening act for Stephen Burroughs, they had a silhouette style. And the music of Algeroque is started, and then the screen started coming up, and then the girls started coming out one by one, creating a V-shape to the front of the stage and then walking back. And the one who was the last model in the group was Bethann. And Bethann, Bethann was amazing. Stephen made this beautiful yellow evening dress for her. And it wrapped around her perfectly. And Bethann, oh my God, she killed it. She did her New York walk. She was out there and she was like fabulous. <laughs> and you had Oscar screaming and clapping. And, and Stephen, the crowd outside was clapping for Bethann. And then we, we had to hurriedly go back again to get dressed in Halston. So in Halston, the entire theme was the dam. The music was Mahler, which was very deep and broody and thundering. And it was very intense, you know, quite the opposite of Stephen Burroughs or Bill Blass. And so I opened the act with Elsa Peretti. And Holson designed because he thought the two of us were very similar. We had very similar nose, you know, and he thought that he would pair the two of us together. He created a beautiful silk jersey evening dress for Elsa, which, which is very long, sort of cut on the bias and it looked incredible. She had what was called, uh, she designed a silver compact that she was gazing into. And I was, next to her and i had he had designed an incredible toga dress that was white on one side and black on the other and he put the articulated silver belt on top of it the snake belt on my hip and i had the cigarette holder which elsa had designed where it was a long a long cigarette held c- cigarette holder in silver with the cigarette and i was smoking <laughs> The two of us, the music started up and it was very dark and broody and mysterious. And then the a pool of light hit on us and you could see us as like, like a whole look. And then Elsa was looking and then quietly disappeared out of the spotlight. And then I turned very slowly to show the white and the black of the outfit and then I disappeared out of the spotlight. So the spotlight went to the next person and the model moved and turned around and then she floated out. So it gave it a very surreal look. It gave it a very mysterious air about it. But each pool of of, of the spotlight would travel around the stage. And some girls were like one of the girls, Corolla, which 
was one of Paulston's persons. She had this incredible chrome yellow satin evening, big puffer coat with a beautiful black dress underneath it. And she came, she had it in the back. You could see the design and she turned slowly and then drifted out. And the, the, this happened through the entire thing, but I had to rush back because they had to pull <laughs> my black and white dress off me and put my fairy glass princess dress on because he designed a, a grouping of is called glacé, which are sequins, paillettes, which the dress was a configured where it was like a very pale a green covered in sequins. The under thing was under sort of like a nude organza. So it was very, very lightweight, but it fitted all the way to my hip. And then there was a very big poop skirt. And that's actually on the cover of Robin's book. There's hiding myself on the cover of the book, of Robin's book. And you can see the dress. And it was purposely done. So I looked like a little glass figurine. And he wanted me to just float around the stage in my own thoughts. And he did one with Shirley in pink. And it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So those were the two outfits that I wore in the Halston segment. But each girl had very different looks, very different shapes. You know, there were evening gowns. And he had Marissa come out at the end in this beautiful bias cut black sheer chiffon dress. It was it, it looked opaque, but once the light hit it, it became very transparent. And she he designed a beautiful mask for her that matched the sequins on the dress. And it had a stem. So she had it on a stem as she she started from the center of the stage and the light hit on her and she walked to the front and she revealed herself, and she looked glorious. Now, another segment in there that was incredible as well is Pat, Patty, being the 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 moth to the flame. It was very funny because Halson told Pat, I want you to be a moth to the flame. But Pat is going, <laughs> yes, of course. Like, oh. It was so much fun because Pat, got on stage. And I'm telling you, she did such a number. She started twirling in that outfit and twirled and twirled and twirled. And everybody was watching her because she stopped right at the edge of the stage. And we're all like going, is she going to fall off? And she just stopped. And there she was. And it was amazing. It was amazing. And Pat is, of course, famous for that spin, right? That is her signature. That's what she's known for. And that's something that she, of course, brought to the stage at Versailles along with her unique personality. And she was not alone, right? Because all of the models, that's why so many of you were hired was to bring life to the clothing. And you were as important to this performance as the clothes themselves, really. And your significance cannot be stated enough in bringing success to the American segment of this show. I mean, it was amazing. It was. So next up was Oscar de la Renta. What was his presentation like? The music was Barry White, The Love Machine. And Oscar adored Billy. And Billy was the genie in that segment. And what she did was she was dressed in like a tunic with pants. And in her sleeve, were different colors of 
the collection. Now, Oscar had, oh my goodness, he, he had at least 30, if not more models, because the way he displayed his collection, he had all the evening dresses in different color segments. So you had green, you had beautiful pale blue, you had purple, you had yellow, you had coral. So each segment, there was at least five to seven models, you know, dressed in those, in that apparel. And I think there's a picture of Pat and I together floating. And we're supposed to be floating like very ethereal on the stage because Billy Blair was the genie who is, who she would pull out of her sleeve one of the scarves and the color would, let's say, be green. So she would go to the green section and wave the scarf in front of the models in the green section. And then the girls would just float in front of the stage and then walk back. And then that scarf would disappear. And then Billy would pull out a blue scarf and then she would wave it in front of the blue models and the blue models would walk in front. And it was beautiful, especially with the Barry White music. So Billy was the star. <laughs> she was the greatest genie you know, in that group. She was spectacular. And so then we had the finale and the finale basically was everybody had to switch out very quickly Again, I had to switch out to a black dress of Halston's. And then we went on stage and all the models wore black. And Liza came out in a beautiful high-low evening dress beaded with sort of like uh, orange gold and black saying Au revoir, Paris. And we were all there and all the, all the girls dressed in black to compliment Liza. And we were waving and saying goodbye. And Liza did Cabaret, the song. And I I cannot tell you, it was like the crowd was loving it. They, it was great. Princess Grace took her program and flew it in the air. And everybody was flying their uh, programs in the air. It was like the shower of programs all over. The French were clapping like crazy, screaming, bravo, bravo. We were like, Wow. And it was it was fantastic. Wow. I mean, what a moment for American fashion and just how incredible to have been there, Chris. And I want to read a little bit from a New York Times article that was published just days after the event. And it was titled Fashion at Versailles. French were good. Americans were great. It was by Ina Nimi. And she was not alone in the sentiment, right? Because the news spread far and wide that the Americans had quote unquote won the Battle of Versailles. And this article actually goes on to quote many of the high pro profile attendees who certainly agreed. The Duchess de Rochefort, for instance, said, quote, the French were good, the Americans were sensational, everyone was fascinated, it wasn't long enough. And then they quote Edmund Burke, who says the Americans stole the show. And the journalist actually talks about how his wife is even dressed by the French couture. And then you have the American actress turned Princess Grace Kelly, who was dressed in a French haute couture, but who said of the American designers, I was so pleased and proud. And you just go on to read in this article, and so many like this article that were published at the same time, how the audience was just elated, right? And they streamed backstage, eager to meet with the American designers and to learn more about their incredible designs. And of course, Chris, the night did not end there. It was followed by an incredibly magical evening and dinner at Versailles. Can you tell us about that experience? So the dinner was beautiful. It was so magical and romantic and you were you were thrown back in time 
the the staff who were the servers for the dinner were all dressed in in that time period so they had these white short pants and the the stockings and the shoes and these beautiful coats and they wore incredible white wigs to to serve and to be the guard. A 18th century, it sounds like. <laughs> 18th century, yes. It was amazing. So we had to get dressed, and I chose my fairy princess dress. And uh, there's pictures from Bill Cunningham and stuff where we were walking around in the designers of our choice. And then uh, one of the French photographers actually said, we'd like the four of you, which was myself, Alvar, Barbara, and Amina, to walk through the Hall of Mirrors, which was open for this event. It's never opened. And oh my goodness, Cassidy, it was amazing. It was amazing. You were thrown back into the time period. Everything was candlelit. There was no electricity in that room. It was all these beautiful candles being reflective in the the mirrors, you know, and you had the staff all dressed in their outfits. And there's a historic picture that uh, from Versailles that, you know, basically shows the four of us walking in the Hall of Mirrors. I think Alva had Stephen Burroughs. I had Halston. And I think maybe Amina had Halston and, and Barbara had Stephen Burroughs. So it was really quite spectacular. Yeah. And I just want to thank you too, for painting this picture for us so beautifully. And I mean, you really brought it alive in color and texture and all of those things. Thank you so much. Because there's not a lot of video footage. And there's actually not that even that many images that survive or that are at least readily available out there. So thank you so much for transporting us back to this time and place. This is really special. This was terrific. Chris, thank you so much for providing such a vivid recounting of this now historic event. Cass, this was really such a pivotal moment in American fashion history. It truly solidified the future of fashion as ready-to-wear and rightfully put American ready-to-wear fashion designers in their proper place alongside their Parisian counterparts, where they remain to this day alongside many other designers from all around the world. And this really has been such a treat. And dress listeners, why stop at this podcast? There is so much great content out there right now surrounding this 50-year anniversary, including so many interviews with many of the models that were there. We, of course, have done interviews with Beth Ann Hardison, Pat Cleveland, and with designer Stephen Burroughs. So we will link to these interviews in our show notes so you can keep on reliving the glory that was the Battle of Versailles 73. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the lasting legacy of the Battle of Versailles next time you get dressed. Dress listeners, can you believe it? We are almost at the end of season six of Dressed. Thursday, we are going to bring you our annual fashion history gift guide episode where Cass and I gift each other gifts from the past, present, and possibly future before we take our winter hiatus. But don't worry, we have gone back through our 450 plus episode back catalog of dressed and selected some of our favorite and maybe forgotten episodes from the dressed wardrobe. So we will be re-airing those each week until we come back at the end of January. But in the meantime, of course, please reach out to us to say hello at our email, hello at dressedhistory.com. Dressedhistory.com is our website where you can find information on our newly expanded list of fashion history offerings coming your way in 2024. This includes April's Fashion History Friday Nights 
Nights at the Met, and my online class, What Women Wore to the Revolution, 100 Plus Years of Transformative Fashion. We hope to see you online and in person in 2024. You could also say hello via direct message on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images and reels accompanying each week's episodes. If you want to find the Instagram content specifically connected to this episode, check out the hashtag dressed 338. That's dressed and the numbers 338. As always, you can find an array of our favorite and podcast featured fashion history titles on our dressed bookshelf. Head on over to bookshop.org slash shop slash dressed. You can also find a link to our bookshelf in our show notes, as well as a link to sign up for the ad-free version of Dressed, which is just $3 a month. As always, thank you so much for your continued support. More Dressed coming your way on Thursday. Dressed, the history of fashion, is a production of Dressed Media.